Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's return to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 13 this morning, verses 18 through 21. The title of the message is, It's Like This. We speak there of the kingdom of God. Jesus gives two parables of what the kingdom of God is like. Now you say, well, the kingdom of God doesn't need a lot of explanation. After all, God is described in both Testaments as being a sovereign ruler, ruler over all of his creation. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That sounds like a king. Psalm 10.16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from the land. Isaiah 37.16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God alone. Isaiah 6, Isaiah had that vision of the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and his train filling the temple. So the imagery of God as king is evident. And at first blush, it looks pretty simple. He's the king, always has been, always will be. And a kingdom, of course, has to have a king, and a king has to have subjects, and they have to live in a certain territory. Yet there remains an element of mystery when we look at the concept, biblically, of the kingdom of God. That's because when Jesus came to earth, he told the people of his day that the kingdom of God was a Upon them or with them, and yet he taught his disciples to pray for the kingdom to come. So there's a sense in which God rules over all, yet the Bible teaches that there are two kingdoms at play in the spiritual realm. There's the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan and the kingdom of God's dear Son. What is clear is that one day all creation will submit to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Paul says so in Philippians 2.10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So with those truths in mind we often speak of the kingdom of God in several aspects and from several perspectives. And we can summarize those nuances about the kingdom with the phrase already and not yet. Essentially, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is here and active now at this present time, but also a sense in which the kingdom of God has not yet reached its fullest expression. Before we go any farther, it might be helpful for us to define what we mean by the phrase kingdom of God. So this week, I did as I often do. I reached out to those who have mentored me in ministry and those who have a much greater education than I do. In fact, I sent a text to a number of godly and studious men. I simply asked them the question, do you have a concise definition for kingdom of God that you would uh, like to share? And, and the results were variations of the same theme and put those together. And so here's how I would define the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the sphere of God's reign inaugurated at Christ's incarnation and consummated at his return. The kingdom of God is the, fear, is the sphere of God's reign inaugurated at Christ's incarnation, that is when he was born, and consummated at his return. That's the already, Jesus has already been born, but he's not yet returned. That's what we mean when we say the kingdom is already, 
but not yet. Well, here in Luke 13, Jesus was not addressing himself to a bunch of New Testament seminaries professors. He was speaking to fishermen and tax collectors and folk like us. He was and is gracious to draw pictures for us through the use of illustrations that we call parables. And we have two of those parables, two of the shortest parables, in fact, in the New Testament, that both share variations of the same theme on the kingdom of God. So let's read the text. Luke 13, verse 18. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, until it all was leaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing of this his word. Now here we have, as I said, two short parables that I believe both share the same truth about the kingdom of God. And that is that the kingdom of God starts small and simple and it grows into something that is truly epic and great. These two parables are short and simple, but its meaning is profound. Now there's three points I want to make from these two parables. Number one is this, the kingdom is understated in its beginning. Look in verse 18. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his garden. Now, a mustard seed is very small. Now, this is not mustard greens. I went yesterday to McDonald's, the hardware store, and, and I bought seeds to plant in my garden in a couple of weeks. And I saw a canister there of mustard greens. And it had a very small seed, but we're not talking about mustard greens. We're talking about a mustard shrub that grew then and does today in the Middle East that could grow up to be over 10 feet tall. But the seed is almost microscopic. And so it was like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So what we could say is that the rule and reign of Christ in our heart and lives started very small, that is with Jesus and expanded to his apostles and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, but it became something huge. So, so what do I mean that his inauguration, his incarnation was, was understated. After all, didn't the angels declare it? Yes, they did, but they declared it to some shepherds out in a remote field. They didn't share it in the middle of a busy city like Rome or Jerusalem. Jesus' birth was not on the front page of the papers. He was born in a humble stable to humble parents. He did not come from wealth or privilege. He did not matriculate in the best schools. He did not handpick the most gifted and talented to be his vice presidents. He was originally confining his ministry to a very small geographical footprint, only those places that he could get to by foot. So what does it mean that the kingdom will grow into something large? Well, just this, the scripture teaches that from those small and understated beginnings that one day a vast multitude of people would be part of the kingdom. You might object and say, Pastor, don't you always say that the gate to heaven is small and the way narrow and few there be that find it. Yes, I do often say that, but the truth is Jesus said that. I'm just quoting him. And it's true. But I take that to mean that in, in every generation, those who are going the other way down the 
broad path that leads to hell, through the wide gate, outnumber those who are on the path to heaven. But I am very optimistic, in fact I'm quite sure, that when we get to heaven there's going to be a lot of people there. Revelation 7, 9 says as much. Remember the Apostle John had that uh, unspeakable privilege of being transported supernaturally to heaven, seeing how the world would end. Revelation 7, 9 says, After these things I looked, this is John speaking, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I take it that these are people who are part of the kingdom. They are worshiping the king because he's sitting there on the throne. Now that is a simple description of the kingdom of God. It will start out small and understated through the ministry of Jesus and then to his apostles and then to the ends of the world, but will one day encompass multitudes from every nation on planet earth. And by the way, that word nation there is not uh, the less than 200 political entities called nations. That word is ethnic groups of which we have identified over 16,000. And I take it to mean that there will be representatives from every people group in heaven. Well, you say, well, you haven't addressed every element of the parable. He, he says, what, what about these birds that will come to roost there? Well, some have sought to allegorize every part of the parable. But, but a parable really, I think, is meant to be very simple in its meaning. A parable is fundamentally about one thing. Now, we can pick it apart until the metaphor falls apart. But there may be some truth to what some believe uh, about the birds that roost in this mustard bush called the kingdom of God. Um, birds typically in the Bible have the connotation of evil. Uh, anytime you see birds as a metaphor in, in, in the Bible it's usually something bad. And so they have taken that and put it into this parable and said certainly these birds must represent evil influences in the church. And there are evil influences in the church, aren't there? There are people who seek to enrich themselves through the church, who seek to use the church and prey upon the church in the name of God. And we always need to be on the lookout. The scripture calls these wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's one possibility. But others have said, no, th these birds who've come to take shelter in the kingdom have to do with Gentiles who were far away and now have come near. And Jesus doesn't tell us what every element of the story is, but, but the obvious truth, the simple truth is this. The kingdom of God starts small and understated, and it grows ultimately until something epic and great. Now secondly, the kingdom of God is ubiquitous in its influence. Look at verse 20, and again he said, here's the second parable, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, until it was all leaven. Now almost every time the term leaven is used in the Bible, it also has a negative connotation. In fact, you look back one chapter earlier in chapter 12, after Jesus had had lunch with the Pharisees and sort of had it out with them, He said to His disciples after lunch, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't be like these guys. Their attitude can infiltrate you and your ministry until it permeates it and that's who you become. And remember that their fundamental problem was that they were religious hypocrites. 
They pretended to be pious and godly, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And Jesus told his disciples, don't, don't be like them. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. In fact, in several parables of the Bible, leaven is tantamount to evil. But in this case, it may be the only case in the New Testament, leaven is something good. And so here you have a picture of a woman, and she's got a large amount of flour that she's working into dough, and she takes some leaven, or we would call it yeast, and introduces into that dough, and she leaves it, and what happens? Well, outside of her view, it happens invisibly, and, and in a way that she certainly would not understand the, the, the chemistry that happened, it begins to work its way through that dough until every part of that lump of dough is affected by that leaven. And that, he says, is what the kingdom of God is like. It is quietly and it works its way until it has impact into every part of the world. He's here speaking of the kingdom of God. Starting small, just as she introduced just a little bit of yeast and having its effect in something much larger. Now we have to be very careful with this parable because some have taken this parable to the extremes and they have developed what uh, some have referred to as an over-realized eschatology. And some in this group are called uh, post-millennials and uh, not talking about millennials. We hear a lot about them today. Post-millennialism is an eschatological camp which states in its beliefs that through the influences of Christians in the world, the world and the culture is going to get better and better until it becomes such a wonderful place to live, Jesus is going to want to come back and set up his millennial kingdom here. Well, I don't know where that world is, but it's not the one I live in, okay? If you read the newspaper or watch the news at all, you know things aren't getting better and better. We heard this week another mass shooting in another part of the world. Now, now that eschatological camp was very popular in the 19th century, even among Baptists, likely because that was an age of advancement scientifically. People were discovering medicines, we were building hospitals all over the world, and it seemed to make sense, hey, we're going to make this world a better place through the influences of, of the church, but, but what comes along in the 20th century? World War I. The war, the war to end all wars. They go, we'll never do this again. We did it again just a couple of decades later. World War II, and then we had the atomic bomb. And so that post-millennial view that the world's getting better and better kind of went by the wayside. There are a few people today that, that still hold to it. It's, it's had some sort of, sort of a comeback in recent years. But I certainly don't believe that's what's at play here. He's simply saying that it's not through violence, it's not through political strategy that Christians have their greatest influence in the world. It's through silent, invisible permeation of every part of the culture that Christians have their influence. And by the way, that works on a personal level, I take it. The greatest influence a Christian can have is in their family, where a mom and a dad can influence their child just through their behavior and the way they order their lives, their children. You, you can influence your neighbor across the fence as they observe the way you make decisions and how about you, you go about your life. And when all of us are out there in our various neighborhoods and in our families having that kind of influence, it, it works its way through the whole community, does it? 
It works its way to the whole. And that, I think, is what Jesus is talking about. It, it creates this ubiquitous influence on anyone and everything that it comes in contact with. We are to influence the culture. But Jesus describes the church's influence on the culture with, with two other words, not leaven, salt and light, right? And we know what a light is for. It exposes truth. And so I take that to be the light of the gospel. We're to take it with us wherever we go because this world is a dark place, isn't it? Spiritually dark. Jesus is the light of the world. And when we tell people about Jesus, we expose their sinfulness to them and we tell them the truth of the gospel. But then the, the other word that's used to describe the influence that we're to have on the world is salt. And some people say, well, we're to, we're to be the flavor of the world. We're to give it some spice. And I don't think that's what it is. Salt in the ancient world was primarily a preservative. It kept things from becoming rotten. And I've often said to you, as rotten as this world is and is becoming, can you imagine if the influence of the church was suddenly removed? The church, as it works its way into the communities and the neighborhoods and the cities and the countries and the governments, has a preserving effect upon the world to keep it from being as rotten as it possibly could be. We don't do so with aggressiveness. We don't do so with violence. Paul says we don't fight a battle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle that he's talking about. And so our influence is through the gospel message and through our Christ-like behavior. Now there's a third point we see here, and that is this. The kingdom of God is ultimately universal in scope. This is the not yet portion of the kingdom we talked about. Now, in one sense, the kingdom is here. Jesus dwells and lives in the hearts and minds of his subjects in the church. But there's another sense in which the kingdom is not yet, but will be, according to the scripture. And we often give the people of Jesus' day who were Jewish a hard time in retrospect, in hindsight, because they didn't recognize their Messiah when they had all of the prophecies of the Messiah. That is true, but it is also true that many of those prophets described a coming kingdom here on earth in which the Messiah would rule and reign. So they were right to be looking for a king to be coming. Their hopes, I take it, are biblical. For example, in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, Let's do an experiment. Can you find Zechariah 14 in your Bible? I know our children who are doing Bible drill can. Uh, if you need some help, go back to Matthew and to the first chapter of Matthew and to the white page between the New and the Old Testament and then start turning back towards Genesis. And within just a few pages, you're gonna to come to the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah chapter 14, we have a prophecy about the coming kingdom of God and the Messiah and his rule and reign here on the earth. And this is what the prophet said. Verse 1, chapter 14, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle 
and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, and the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of your mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, and the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as winter. Now here verse 9. And the Lord will be king. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So I take that very literal. The reason I do is because look at the detail that he goes into geographically. He talks about geographical points that they would have known. He talks about seas, he talks about rivers, he talks about mountains that they were familiar with. He talks about cities and regions that they would have known to be literal geographically. And then at the, all, at the end he says, and the Lord will be the king. That is in a way that he's not the king now, the already, but the not yet. And so they were right to be looking for a Messiah to reign in Jerusalem. And that's why so many Jewish people were disappointed when Jesus came as the suffering servant. They, they had failed to understand Isaiah's prophecy that he would come humble and, and lowly and that by his stripes we would be healed. Even Jesus' inner circle of disciples seemed to be disappointed at times because they were wanting to be his aides de camp when he ruled and reigned. See, see, they thought he was going to overthrow the Romans and set up his capital city in Jerusalem, and, and they wanted to be in on the front door of that so they could have power. In fact, James and John had their mother come to Jesus, and she said, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, grant me this favor, that one of my sons sits on your right and one on the left, that they would be high up in your government. Now that term government is interesting because we hear it in other places, don't we? We only read this verse at Christmas time predicting of the Messiah that the government will be on his shoulders. Have you ever wondered what does that mean? How is that fulfilled in a little baby at Christmas time? The government will be on his shoulders. What well, has it been yet? It will be when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. And so I'm revealing my eschatological position, aren't I? So let me just put it out there for you. Here's what I believe. I believe that the kingdom of God and the way that we understand the New Testament concept was initiated at the incarnation when, when Jesus was born. He said, the kingdom is among you. And it started small like a mustard seed. And he began to call people to himself and they believed and they began to follow Christ. And, and from those 12 disciples, they were sent out all over the known world and every Christian in the world today, if we were able to, could trace our spiritual ancestry back there, couldn't we? Someone telling someone in every subsequent generation 
continuing to, to spread that good news as yeast goes all the way through a lump of dough. And so for 2,000 years we've lived in what we call the church age, this age of grace where an open invitation is for whoever will may come. But one day that opportunity for forgiveness and grace will be over. And at that time Christ will come for His church at what uh, we call the rapture. That's described by Paul in Thessalonians. And that uh, then Christ is going to come and judge the world at the, at the Battle of Armageddon. And then He's going to set up His literal thousand year reign which we call the Millennial Kingdom. And that's what I believe the Bible teaches in Daniel. It also teaches it here in Revelation. In fact, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, let's end on this. Turn there. That's easier to find. Just go to the end. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Again, the Apostle John has this wonderful privilege. He's been transported somehow supernaturally. So you see how the world ends. And... Remember there's this series of bowls of wrath. There's these series of horns that are blown. And in Revelation 11:15 it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign, how long? Forever and ever. You see, Zechariah says the difference between the kingdoms of men is that they're short. King rises up, he rules for a while, he dies, someone takes his place. But the kingdom of Christ is forever and ever. We sing that, don't we? And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their face and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. I take it, there's the already, Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of every believer. But one day he's going to set up his kingdom and every entity and institution and individual and spirit in the universe is going to recognize his authority. That's what Paul meant when he said one day every knee would bow of things in heaven, that's angelic beings, of things on earth, that's human life, and things under the earth, that's Satan and his demons. All of them are going to bow their knee and recognize the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. So, let me ask you this. With that stated, does that include you? Will everyone in this room bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Yes. You're on the earth. You're included. That question has been answered. Will you bow your knee? The question that remains is, will you bow your knee in this life or at the judgment? Because if you bow your knee in this life during this period of opportunity for grace and forgiveness, it will benefit you eternally. Because the Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll be spared from the wrath of God. And that really is fundamentally what it means to be saved. We are saved from the wrath of God by faith in what Christ has done in our place. Christ has done everything that is necessary for everyone in this room to be saved through his death, burial, and, and resurrection. God the Father is perfectly satisfied 
with what the Son has done. And the way in which you appropriate that gift of salvation is by faith, by belief. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. That is to be judged by God. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. It's not through what you can do. It's not by impressing God. It's by humbly submitting to His Lordship and receiving His gracious gift by faith. If you do that now, when you stand before God and He judges you, it won't be based on your life and your sinfulness. It will be based on the righteousness of Christ, which He imputes to you through salvation and regeneration. But if you don't repent in this life, and you die in your sins, you're going to be resurrected as well, the Scripture says, and you're going to be judged by God, but He's going to judge you based on your life and your deeds. And here's what the Bible says about that. All of us fall short. None of us will make it to heaven if we're judged on our own deeds and our own life. It's only the righteousness of Christ that can save us. So you will bow the knee, either in this life or at the judgment, and I am not neutral about which I want for you. I am desperately pleading for you to bow your knee today. You say, well, I'm young. Can it wait? No, it can't wait. None of us are promised tomorrow. That's what Jesus said. Remember he told those two stories about the tragedies? Remember the one about the tower that fell there at Jerusalem and 18 people, and they died suddenly? without warning at a time they weren't expecting it. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No one's expecting to be judged, but the judgment is surely coming. All of human history is playing out just as God ordained it. And the question is, will you bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Which means to come to Him with simple childlike faith. As I say every Sunday, Empty hands, outturned pockets, the attitude of a pauper, Lord have mercy upon me, the sinner. You can do that today, right? We are. We're going to have an invitation in, in just a moment, and we're going to give you the opportunity. We're going to have pastors and counselors here at the front. If you are ready for the first time in your life to profess Jesus Christ is Lord, today's the day of salvation. And we ask you to come forward publicly because Jesus calls us publicly. And we want you to be a part of this congregation. We want to hold you accountable to those commitments that you've made. And we want you to hold us to the, account, uh, to the commitments that we've made in the context of the local church. We want to rejoice as we obey the Lord's commandment to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's someone here today, you're saved, you have been a long time, but you've never publicly been baptized. Something you've been unwilling to do. It's not a matter of whether you go to heaven or not. It's a matter of are you willing to be obedient to your Lord. You have declared Jesus is your sovereign, He's your King, is your Lord. And He's calling you to obedience in that area. Maybe there's a family here, a couple, I don't know. Maybe a single person. And uh, you've been visiting for a while, but you've never made a commitment to coming under the authority and the accountability of the church through membership. And so we invite you to do that today. As we stand and sing, just slip out from where you are. And, Say, I'm ready to be a member of this church, and we want to hear your testimony and celebrate with you and welcome you into this family.
And that's been going on for 2,000 years, beloved. The, the kingdom started very understated, very small, as that little baby entered the womb of Mary and ultimately the world. And then it extended to those few that Jesus called it his disciples. And then through their influence, the gospel was taken to the four corners of the world. And to this day, it continues to go out. And we get to be a little bit a part of that. Isn't that exciting? When we go to Africa and we go to Alaska and we go to these different places, we're taking the gospel to those people groups. And, and we expect some of them will be saved because the Bible says that uh, in every tongue and people group, the Lord Jesus is going to be known and we get to be a small part of that. Let's thank the Lord for that great privilege. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, as we talk about the kingdom, on one hand, there's an element of mystery. We don't fully comprehend it. And yet on the other hand, it's pretty clear that even though the kingdom started small and understated, that it has grown and continues to grow into something epic and huge and one day will reach its consummation at the second coming of Christ when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And Father, my earnest prayer is that every person in this room would be ready for that day. Father, I pray there's no one in this room who is clinging tenaciously to their own goodness. I pray, Lord, you would strip them bare by your spirit and expose to them their sinfulness. Father, I pray that then they would do the only thing they can do, which is run to Jesus and to plead his blood and ask him for mercy and grace because he's promised to give that to all who will call upon his name. Lord, I thank you for many hundreds in this room who have been following Christ for many years. And, and Lord, our, our very real expectation is that he's coming again soon. And we say with the saints of old, Lord Jesus, come. And Father, our, our trust and our hope in the future is not that we have every eschatological I dotted and T crossed. Our hope is in the simple truth that Jesus died for sinners of which we are some. And so, Lord, we thank you for the simple gospel. And I pray, Father, that through it, many would come to believe in this area for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.